Welcome to The Rock's podcast for our midweek study through Galatians. False teachers were throwing believers into confusion by perverting the gospel. They taught that salvation depended on our own good works. So the Apostle Paul must remind them that salvation is by faith alone, by grace alone, through Christ alone, and to stand firm in their freedom. Now let's join Pastor Ross in our verse-by-verse study through this most liberating letter. Alrighty, I welcome you back to your seats and we're going to get started here. Looking forward to chapter six because it's the last chapter of Galatians. We're not going to finish the book tonight. We'll make it down to verse five. You know why? Because those first five verses are packed with a lot of good things. And so we look forward to the way the Holy Spirit's going to work in our hearts and lives. Let's go to the Lord and ask him for his blessing. Now, Father God, we just know that all things are possible tonight. Our lives could change because of the powerful living word that's sharp as a two-edged sword. It can get in right down into the core of our souls and our spirits and do things that no therapy, no willpower, no willpower of man could ever do, but a supernatural powerful transformation can happen tonight. So set our hearts free. Uh, We are here to do your will. You are our master. You are our Lord. We are your servants. In Christ's name, amen. And P.S. Help my voice to hold out. All right. So coincidentally, where we find ourselves on Sunday mornings, Paul is wrapping up and concluding his letter to the Romans. So we'll be in chapter 16, Lord willing, on Sunday. And here, midweek study, Paul's concluding his letter to the Galatians in chapter uh, 6, which is the final chapter, as I have said. And so often, it's very true, right before you say goodbye, right before you part company, that the most important things are brought up. They come to the surface. You know, right before you uh, say goodbye, you'll say, don't forget, and whatever's really pressing, to make that payment, or, or, or well, don't forget where the spare key is, or don't forget where the emergency numbers are. There's just something about saying goodbye that you want to, uh, that just kind of motivates you to bring up what's really pressing, and that is true here, certainly in Galatians, as we hit chapter 6. Now, the last five chapters, as we've been seeing, um, Paul has been defining the Christian life. It's been like Salvation 1A, the Galatian Christians, uh, because of some false teachers who had come by and started keeping Jewish rituals and regulations. They wanted, even though they were Gentile Christians, they wanted to become Jews and to have God's approval that way. And so Paul had to teach them that the Old Testament Judaism, the rituals, the regulations, all pointed to Christ. And that Judaism's job was to produce the Messiah. And everything in Judaism was a foreshadowing of Christ and who he was and who he is and, and, and the work that he would do on our behalf, 
on the cross. And so that now that Christ is here, as Jesus told the Jews, that Judaism became like an old stretched out wineskin or a tattered garment that you can't patch up. It became obsolete, Judaism, because now the fruit of Judaism, Christianity, was born. And so um, G- G- the Paul has to tell these Galatians, Christianity is not a religion of rules and do's and don'ts, the things I can do and the things that I cannot do. It's a relationship with the living God. And so salvation is not a religion. It's a relationship. It's reconciliation. It's new life in Christ. It's walking with the living God. It's being transformed by his love and being changed and, and extending that love and grace and mercy to others to carry one another's burdens. And this is what Christianity's about. And legalism, what they were into, you know, I, you know, I keep these kind of dietary laws or I, I don't do this and I do, do that, whatever. Uh, legalism cannot morally transform you. The beauty of the image of Christ that God is working us to be as loving as Christ, as patient as Christ, as wise as Christ, the kindness of Christ, that doesn't come about by keeping a bunch of rules and whether you keep a Sabbath or eat pork or not. These things are irrelevant. And so uh, this is what Christianity is. It's this living, breathing, walk with the living God. So now as we dive in, Here to chapter 6, the Galatians are told they have to change their focus from keeping rules to keeping in step with the living God, keeping in step with the Spirit. They need to go from being under law to to living under God's love. So Galatians chapter uh, 6 and verse 1, actually we're going to back up one verse for context and I'll explain why we're going to do that. But he says, if you're getting it, if you're keeping in step with the Spirit, this is how your life will look. There we go. (laughs) The last verse of chapter 5 says, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And it it, it pours into 6.1, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself where you also may be tempted. And so we'll get situated here. Uh, As I said, we're going to make it down only to verse uh, five. So there's some things here to notice. The first thing you'll see is that we've started at the last verse of chapter five um, because most commentators say, and I agree with them, uh, that it was kind of a a chapter division that could have been uh, cleaner in uh, the chapter divisions came when um, I believe it was 1200 or so, 1227, and it was the Archbishop of Canterbury, which was the kind of the head of the Church of England, the Anglican Church. So in the 1200s there, uh, he uh, divided, he had a team, 
And he divided the, the Bible into chapters, which are very helpful. But not all chapter breaks are created equal. They're not all inspired. Uh, they're not inspired by God necessarily. They're very helpful. And so this one, just uh, let me tell you. So the verse before 26 really ended the chapter, should have been where the chapter 6 should have started at 26. And this is what the, ch the verse, if you're looking there, at verse 25 said, he said, if then we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, which was a beautiful closeout and summation of everything that came before. That's where the chapter should have ended. Now, a new train of thought starts at verse 26 in chapter 5 and goes to 6-1 right there. Just two verses, right? And let me paraphrase. It's a nice transition. He says, it's, and, and this keeping step, with the Holy Spirit, it's not being full of ourselves, which causes relational strife. I'm paraphrasing your text here, but in being, but being full of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, looking out for one another in love. So, uh, if you're taking notes, I think verses one through ten. Even though we're not going to get all the way to ten, a good way to label it is the definition of a spiritual Christian. Because he's going to start saying to, to be a spiritual man or woman of God, as we call it, to be spirit-filled, this is the kind of behavior. And this is what I love. I love when a concept in the Bible like love is so, it can be so vague in general. What do you mean by that? And then the Holy Spirit says, this is a, a picture of a practical everyday situation. And then you can say, aha, I get it. Here's what spiritual Christians look like. He says there in verse 1, you who are spiritual. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, all Christians have the Holy Spirit. Because in Romans chapter 8, it says every Christian has the Holy Spirit or they don't belong to Christ. Now, it's more when you talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, um, it's more like do you consider yourself a a spiritual Christian opposed to a worldly or carnal Christian. There are two kinds, you know. Not everybody as uh, are mature Christians who are saved, right? There are immature Christians and mature Christians who are some sometimes called spirit-filled or full of the Spirit. And here's what he's talking about: being filled with the Holy Spirit. You, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He just gave you nine fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And he said, that comes from God. That's in your, your heart because God put it there. They belong to him. And your work as a Christian is to yield, not produce that. You can't. But you die to your own sinful nature and you yield and you let God breathe that kind of life through you. And so really to be full of the Spirit isn't that you have more of the Spirit necessarily. It's that the Spirit has more of you. That, see, uh, how can you be filled with something if you're already filled with something, right? So uh, this is what he's going to be saying here is, is that the old nature, the old way of doing things has to decrease and he must increase. John the Baptist taught us that in John chapter 3 and verse 
30. And so if, if, if you're wondering what he says when he says, you who are spiritual, he said, you who are godly, you who the, the spirit's got a hold of you. And you don't live your life for yourself. You live your life for God and God's will. This is who we're talking about. And what I love about this last chapter is everything he's saying is going to define what that means. This is how Christians who are mature uh, live. And so interesting to me, first of all, he, uh, how we treat others determines uh, how we treat others. So how, uh, how, how we see ourselves is how we will treat others. For example, what, we're, what we see in the text here, uh, if we think too highly of ourselves, then we ought. If we're conceited here, he says, that wrecks our relationships. And there are two specific ways, he says, if we think more highly of ourselves. So he says, let us not, this is how, to be a spirit-filled Christian. It's certainly not being self-absorbed and being conceited. That word there means to be puffed up and full of yourself. And so if you're full of yourself, there are two things that result that wreck relationships. Number one, he says you will provoke uh, people, one another. So a person who's full of themselves is a person that provokes the word means to challenge, to be in somebody's face. It means, really, you always have something to prove because you're full of yourself. And so you always have to prove that you know uh, everything and that you have to show your superiority or that you're better or that you can do this or that you're a big deal and that uh, you got it all together and all of that. You never apologize because you're never wrong. And that provokes people, see? So a spiritual person is not full of themselves. They're full of the Holy Spirit, and they don't provoke people as a result. The second way, if it's all about you, and you're dealing with someone you judge to be superior uh, to you, then you envy. And so that's your next word in your text. And he says, you know, after all, uh, you, you want the preeminence, right? Uh, life is really being socially on top for somebody who's full of themselves, jockeying for position. Life's uh, energy is poured into your image, how other people perceive you. And really, like the Pharisees of old, you want, you would rather have the applause of men than the approval of God. And so uh, as a result, uh, People who are full of themselves, and you can be kind of full of yourself as a Christian. There's lots of immature Christians around, right? And, and as a result, an immature Christian or carnal Christian, somebody who's not full of the Holy Spirit, is of no use to God whatsoever because they're part of the problem. And so they're very un unhelpful in Christian ministry, and they are really dead spots in the pews. And uh, so he says there in verse one, but you who are spiritual, you know your place. You're not conceited. You who are spiritual, you have room in your heart for awareness of somebody who's hurting. You have an, a discernment. There's room for compassion for somebody because you're not always, you're not sitting the whole night thinking about you and your problems 
and what other people said about you on Facebook today. It's not, or, or about who's fighting in your family and all of this, me, myself, and I. That's not a mature Christian. A mature Christian lays all that down and is here to serve the living God, come hell or high water. And so he says, you who are spiritual, who know your place, you're humble, you have humility. Christ said, he said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. He says, no worries about coming to me, even though I'm the son of God, because I am gentle and humble in heart, lowly. The word for humility comes from the word ground or dirt, to take our place before God. Uh, Really, you know, that's where it comes from. And so when we do that, he says, there's room for the compassion. And then you who are spiritual, you restore people. That's what the first little definition of what a spiritual person or a godly person or a spirit-filled person, whatever we're calling it tonight, is, is that we are other-centered, we're mature enough and to have compassion in our hearts to want to restore. Now he says in verse one there, if someone is caught in a sin. Now he's not talking about somebody who's determined uh, to backslide and uh, sinning to his heart's delight and not interested in church and is out there doing his thing. He's not really talking about a reprobate. He's talking about a good Christian who got caught he got too close to the edge, whoops, a lot, and broke his ankle or something. I, I mean, it's a, uh, the word to sin there is trespass, but it's, it's a word to kind of lose your balance and slip. Uh, it's, it, it, and so he's saying that we goof up. Uh, we, uh, we have lapses in judgment. Good Christians. That's what happens. And it's the job of one another to be our brothers and our sisters keepers in that we encourage people, we look for people who are hurting. So if somebody, he's saying, if anybody is caught in a trespass or sin, uh, King James has fault, but it should be sin um, because it's the same word Jesus said, if you forgive men their trespasses against you, your heavenly father will forgive your trespasses. It's the same word here. And so, uh, you know, a toddler can be potty trained, but it doesn't stop him from having accidents from time to time. And are you saying that we are like toddlers who have accidents? Yes, I am. Now he says, you who are spiritual aren't going to go, oh, you know, I'm not changing anybody's diaper, you know, or uh, ignoring it or condemning the person or gossiping because they uh, had a fall of some sort or hassling them. The spiritual person will help them. Your friend becomes bitter, gets hurt. People's feelings get hurt. They start lashing out and saying things they shouldn't say and causing division and getting people to see things from their point of view. You're supposed to reach out and help them. You know, if if somebody is slipping into sexual sin, this happens in young adults all the time and old adults and young at heart. It just never stops to the grave. Sexual immorality, always right there. 
And he says, if you see your good Christian brothers or sisters, they're, they're, they're slipping. They've taken a spin of fall. He says, it's your job as a spirit-filled person. It was a murderer, I must remind you, who coined the phrase, what? Am I my brother's keeper? And then he went out and slaughtered his brother in cold blood. In fact, the Hebrew word for what Cain did to Abel is to slaughter. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, you are, and I am. We are our, our, our brother's keepers here. And when somebody falls, the spiritual, the godly, the mature person is going to see that and, and not have any of the other reactions, not even judge them. He's talking about somebody who's had a fall. We need to restore them. I love that word in the Greek. It's a medical term to restore them. It means to set a fractured bone back in place. It's a medical term. and says It's what's wrong in that person's life needs to be straight. And of course, he, he uh, uh, says it has to be with gentleness. Why? I mean, can you imagine breaking a bone? How, I mean, you're going to reset and play around with things like that? When somebody takes a fall from grace and has a sin problem, it's painful. It's intricate. One writer said, soul work requires the finesse of a neurosurgeon. When you go into somebody's soul, you better go in watching your tone, watching how you deal with them. Um, Yes, they need some truth. And yes, they need to come to repentance. And part of what you do to restore somebody is speak the truth in love, So that helps them to be convinced to want to make the turn which repentance is needed for them to be right in fellowship with God again. So whatever is necessary, you tell them the truth, you encourage them, you pray with them, you you, and 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 you know, setting a bone uh, and and the healing of a bone was it six weeks maybe depending on what bone you break. Or longer, right? I'm looking at somebody who broke a bone and it took a lot longer than that. So uh, self-inflicted sinful wound of your soul is going to take some time. So we need to be patient. The spiritual person has time because they have compassion. Because the spirit of Christ, the healer, the bearer of all burdens lives within us and wants to care for that wounded Christian and not to have them get the message, oh, you're a loser, you're a failure, uh, you know, you're walking unworthy, uh, God's done with you, life will never be the same. None of that, he says. Reaffirm your love for them. This is part of restoring. Redirect them to God's grace. Point them to the scriptures. Help them be there for them and so that they can be accountable. And then he says, and watch thyself, man. Mr. O, you who are spiritual, watch yourself, he says, because you are not exempt from temptation. And that's the thing, too, because you start messing around, particularly if you're prone to the same kind of sinful problem that they are prone to. Right, And this happened all the time at Bible college. Guys who, you know, 
were struggling with pornography, and then there would be a guy who would um, get too close to that and see what was going on with them, and then sure enough, they fell as well. So you have to be really careful. He said, I love Jude, verse 23. It says, um, rescue people from sin with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. So no matter, you know, how spiritual you think you are, I, I've told you this before. I had a friend who used to say, uh, 10 seconds in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I'll destroy my life. And I used to think, oh, what a baby, you know? And the older I got, I just thought that's a really good attitude to have about yourself is to know that you are capable of all things terrible. That's because the sinful nature dwells in all of us. So he says, listen, you call yourself a uh, spiritual mature Christian, then this is what should be happening. You should be restoring people. You know, uh, some people, uh, the people he's talking about, they, they want to be restored down deep. We're not talking about those who have left the church and left the faith and they're out there doing some serious sinning. Who knows where their heart's at, right? We're talking about the, our brothers, uh, you get it, who have uh, uh, a relapse, maybe something like that. You get it, but you're the answer. You are part of the answer. Okay, let's go on, and we'll just get to the second point here. And this is as far as we get. Verse two: Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Each one of us should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else for each one should carry his own load. Lots of good stuff here. So a spiritual Christian, first of all, isn't about themselves, right? Um, uh, We've just been saying this. They help restore sinning and erring brothers and sisters uh, fellow Christians who struggle and caught and get tripped up in sin. And now he's saying a spiritual Christian carries one another's burdens. It's something that the rock, the members of this church are very good at doing. Uh, now, so the theme is kind of uh, similar here, but wow, he's talking to Gentile Christians who want to keep Jewish laws. So he says, you want to keep laws? You'll never keep 613 laws. Though the, the rabbis can't keep them all. The Pharisees couldn't keep them. The Sadducees couldn't keep them. Nobody could keep them. But I'll tell you what. He says, you can keep the law of Christ. You can fulfill it. Aren't you interested in that? And so that's really kind of his hook here. And uh, so... What would it mean? What does it mean, the law of Christ? Yes, Jesus has commands. He has laws, and they revolve around love. Jesus said, my commands, they're easy. They're light. Why? Because it's about receiving his love 
being changed by his love, grace, and mercy. And then he just wants us to simply respond to him in love and, and, and live close to him by his grace and extend that kind of love and to serve him and to be a light to people around. That's not hard. That's not a burden. I mean, there's a lot of air quotes around work involved in a good marriage. But is it a burden if you really love that person? So love mitigates the difficult nature of any task. If it's done in love, you remember um, Jacob and Rachel, and I think it's Genesis um, 39-ish, 29. It's in Genesis, uh, where Laban, who was in charge of uh, his niece, I guess it would be, right? Rachel, right? And Jacob was... Oh, head over heels for Rachel. And he said, well, you can, you can be married if you work for me for seven years. And he did. And then he, he did the switcheroo on him and gave him the other daughter. And then he said, tell you what, you know, it's just not our custom to marry off the younger first. And so work for me another seven years and I'll give you Rachel. And the Bible says that it seemed like three days to Jacob because of his great love for Rachel. It seemed to him seven years more. It seemed to Jacob, <laughs> what's seven more years? Because of his love, right? So that's why the commands of God are not burdensome, First John chapter 5, because it's all about loving God, responding to him in love and sharing that love with others. And so that, when he says, what's the, what's the law of Christ? Well, the law of Christ, he says at the Last Supper, John 13, he says, a new command I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. Well, that's actually an old command, right? Because in Leviticus 19 and verse 9, it says to love one another, sorts, right? What's new about... <laughs> What Jesus is saying is this piece, as I have loved you. So here's what he's saying. You know, when your dirty feet need to be washed and nobody wants to admit that they can do the job of a servant and it needs to be done and everybody's saying, well, I'm the greatest disciple and by getting up out of the table, you're going to prove that you're not the greatest, that you're the servant in the house. Well, then you'll get up and you'll wash everybody's feet because that's what I did. And when people are nailing you to a cross, you're going to put them in the best possible light and you're going to say, Father, forgive them because they don't fully understand what they're doing. And you're going to love people who are unlovely and you're going to touch lepers and you're going to um, respond kindly to people who persecute you and love your enemies. That's the new part. So what he's saying here is you will fulfill the, the command of Christ, the law of Christ, by loving like Christ loved. And part of that answer, verse 2, there is carrying each other's burden. So here's the wonderful implications of carry each other's burdens. Number one, we all have burdens, and God doesn't intend for us to carry them alone. That's what I got from this. If we're to carry one another's burdens, that means we all have them. Some of them may be more heavy than others, but we all have burdens. Now, 
that we all need to be looking out for each other and caring for one another and carrying each other's burdens really <clears throat> brings to life again for me Proverbs 18.1. It's one of my favorite uh, Proverbs. It says, an unfriendly person rebels against all sound judgment. What does he mean by that? He says, you're a very foolish person if you're unfriendly. Why? Because the way God designed life is we need each other. The way he designed family and community and church, we need each other. We need to carry each other's burdens because we all have stressors. We all have problems. We all have crosses and losses to bear. It's unwise to be unfriendly because we need one another. So it's a subtle rebuke here. It's a subtle rebuke to those who don't like to show weakness, who want to do everything themselves. Right, So they don't want anybody to carry their burdens. And it's also uh, for those who don't like to get involved to take time to carry burdens. So here's a great illustration. It does say in the scriptures, cast your cares upon the Lord. <clears throat> cast your burdens on him and he will sustain you. But part of the way that the Lord sustains you is through Christians and through one another. So we are his hands, we are his feet, we are his words. So a great illustration is Paul. He, is a, he was having a terrible time, a terrible burden, and he told the Corinthians, he said, we were afflicted in every way at every turn. We had struggles outwardly, fears within, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, so you see that even Paul the Apostle he had this great burden, and it was relieved not through private praying and waiting on the Lord, though we can't say enough about doing those things, but actually God sent a person. It was a friend. It was a friend with good words that, that helped carry the apostles' burden. So, you know, it doesn't take much to... Uh, carry somebody's burden to, to lighten their load. Life can be so hard. Life can be so uphill. And so really just a compliment, just an acknowledgement that the person is doing well, um, a little card, a little note. These are things. Meals when a family is struggling. This church is so good at that. I mean, uh, just somebody has to sneeze. And uh, I tell you what, pot roasts start showing up at the door. And um, we're, we're really, you guys are good at that. Listening to people's problems, praying with them, helping in practical ways. Um, when I got sick with cancer almost 20 years ago now, um, you know, Christian friends came and they took care of our kids. Uh, I was sick for so long, but the kids don't even remember half of it because everybody was taking them to Disneyland. They take them on hunting trips, the boys. Um, I remember uh, one young adult uh, moved in with us to help so that Barb could be at the hospital in San Francisco with me. Uh, and I was there for three months, but... It was because people would walk alongside of us and carry 
our burdens. That, that was Christ. Christ uses us. You are never more used of God than when you help lighten somebody's load who's struggling and every person in this room has private struggles, all kinds of things, stresses that nobody except God himself knows about. And so your sensible, sensitive, I should say, words, your prayer, your being careful with too much sarcasm because they're not in that place. We're supposed to carry one another's uh, burdens. And so uh, we're going to finish up here uh, with these same verses uh, tonight with what hinders us from being burden busters. That's what we need to be. So one big vice that uh, will keep a believer from fulfilling the role of burden-bearing restorers is pride. So verse 3, they're so clear. If anybody thinks they're something when they're nothing, they're fooling themselves. And so pride, and as we've been saying, if you're full of yourself, there's really no room for anything else. So he says, the implication is if we do not or will not carry one another's burdens, we think that we're above doing that or it's beneath our dignity. So it's kind of like looking down, somebody who thinks they're something, sees somebody who is showing signs of weakness or stress out, and they see that as a, um, kind of a, a, a weakness. They're, they're above that, and so they judge that as that that's too bad, but they don't want to do anything about it. They can't be associated with somebody who's falling apart or coming undone at the seams or displaying uh, signs of uh, weakness, as I've been saying. So he says, a paraphrase there is, if you think you're all that, when you're not, you're only fooling yourself. Now, it's not cool to think of ourselves as somebodies. I mean, that overinflated estimation of how important we are, right? Uh, we're all nobodies. It just really doesn't matter how much money we make or how beautiful we are or anything else, how gifted we are. There's only one star of the show. There's only one somebody and it's God who became one of us, and considering that he's God, he, and he came through a human womb, and considering what he did was stripped down like that as the God-man, nailed to a piece of wood that he himself created, because by him all things were created, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. So considering that, that that's who he is, and that's what he did, and where who he loves, considering who we are morally, that just makes him the only somebody. The rest of us, we're all really insignificant compared to him. And the way we become, as valuable as we are to God, the way we become significant is doing the will of the one somebody makes us more than a nobody because now we're connected to the somebody. But he's the one who gets all the glory and all the praise. So this is his point here as we're wrapping up. Um, live your life with this overarching purpose to help relieve 
people, to, to um, lighten loads, to refresh hearts, to inspire hope, to build people up, to reconcile them, uh, to solve dilemmas, to make peace, to restore people caught in sin. And then he's really saying here in your text, if this is asking too much of you in your busy, busy life because you've got better, more important things to do, then you truly are deceiving yourself because there's nothing more important than being a burden bearer. This is God's overarching will for everybody who hears the sound of my voice tonight. This is God's will for your life and for mine is that we be burden bearers, that that's what we dedicate our entire life as we live out our own lives, that as we do in the context of our own personal lives and our own personal ambitions, they should come under his ambition to make us in whatever capacity we find ourselves burden bearers. He is the great burden bearer, and he's taken up residence in our hearts. And this is the secret to true happiness, to true joy, to true contentment. Because if you're living for selfish ambition, it's just not going to work. You weren't designed for that. You were designed to be, like him, a burden buster, a burden bearer. Amen? Phew, we made it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your help, Lord, uh, through this message. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge, God. We just love you. We want to be like you. We want to be about our Father's business and be other-centered. Lord, you said the Son of God didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. Help us to find that true joy to, to imitate Christ our Lord and bear some burdens all around us, Lord, instead of just being self-absorbed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.